Good morning, beloved. It's wonderful to be in the house of the Lord. Thank you. The sisters, the song that they sang was very beautiful. And I was amazed ever since we walked into this building this morning and the singing of the Christmas carols that uh, the Holy Spirit actually gave me this theme of the grace. Didn't everything that we have done so far this morning speak of the grace of God? It's so wonderful. Um, Now, you have two surprises this morning. The first one is me. (laughs) And the second surprise is you are going to co-preach with me. Meaning that I'm going to deliver my message this morning in three chapters. Now, it serves many purposes. The one purpose that might spring to mind and forget that immediately is that might give you the opportunity when you arise to slip out to the bathroom and never come back. That's not the intention. (laughs) Uh, But the other one is just to give you a leg stretch and also for you to feel that we are all here to participate. I think it's 1 Corinthians 14, 26 or 28 says that we should all participate when we get together. So it's a wonderful privilege for me to stand in for pastor this morning. Again, for those who don't know who I am, I'm Gideon Van Ryn. The accent already betrayed me. <laughs> and whenever I say that English is only my second language, then uh, I'll have to forgive people because they say they thought it's my th- third or my fourth language. <laughs> so please bear with me this morning. But I'm so glad and so uh, privileged and humbled, in fact, to be the deliverer of the message this morning. May God bless you. May his body be edified in the process. And may the glory be to him only. Let's just pray for a moment. You know, I feel, I feel that we should pray for Cassie and Pastor Lloyd while they're on my mind. And let's pray that the Lord keeps their hand over them, protects them, touch that the Lord touches her body and heal her up, uh, heal her, her body completely so that when she comes back that they can resume things again normally. Lord God, what a wonderful privilege to pray this morning for Pastor and for Cassie. For their family, allow them to enjoy this break and keep your hand over them. We ask specifically, O oh Lord, that you kindly would bless Cassie with your anointing and with your hand and with your hand of healing over her. And let them all have a time of real rejuvenation in the presence of the Lord. And when they come back, that we will have the testimony of how good you are. Thank you for this privilege. Uh, God, will you also kindly bless your word this morning? And will you, be edif- will you edify the assembly this morning in a very special way? Both him that speaks and they that listen, so that we all have the edification. If you want to exhort us through your word, do so. Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place. All in the name of Jesus, we pray. And we thank you for that. Amen and amen. Right, I said to you that... Uh, We are going to talk in three chapters this morning. Now, my overall theme is grace. Grace. and All the carols this morning lauded the grace of God, and I'm so glad for that. It was sort of a confirmation that what we are about to say will sink in deeply. Uh, The first part, let me just give you an overview In terms of grace, my specific title will be the 16th verse of John 1. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. In the translation that I have uh, in Afrikaans, the idea is grace upon grace. Like the waves of the sea in terms of its abundance. 
overflowing grace. Grace for grace. So that is my title of my message this morning. The first subtitle for the first chapter would be, What is Grace? This is the part where I will try and lay the foundation for grace as far as doctrine is concerned. Now this will be, listen carefully to me, the lay version. The lay version. I'm so glad that our church allows lay preachers like me. Uh, We are there to also assist in the body of Christ. And I'm so glad to say, I don't know how many of you realize that the greatest lay preacher of all times was none other than Jesus Christ himself. Because they were amazed at some stage, they said, to which university or college or institution did he go? Because of the wisdom that he actually reflected. So the first part will be my lay version, Doctrine Light. Doctrine Light on the doctrine of grace and faith. And I'll really keep it short and light and by way of an overview only. The second one, I delve a little bit deeper into what is called costly grace. Costly grace. And I borrow from a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote letters, and I'll tell the story a little bit later, about costly grace. And please, this is not in order to be irreverent, but deliberately to have the shock effect. Cheap grace. You understand? You catch my drift? Cheap grace. So that will, the last part will be on so-called cheap grace. I'd like to find a better term, but this is what his essay was on. Pseudo-grace. All right, so these are the three chapters that I'm going to talk to you about this morning. Now, let's start with chapter one. And after chapter one, I'm going to ask Adrian to play Amazing Grace. And that's where you co-preach with me. All right? And we'll all stand up and we'll sing a verse or two of Amazing Grace. Right, what am I planning to deal with in this little chapter one? A 10-minute or a 12-minute chapter? As I say, a lay version, doctrine light. What is grace? We'll try and answer that question. How can we define grace? The fact that grace is an attribute of God, I'll just point that out. And then we ask, are there any supreme supreme examples in the Old Testament of the manifestation of God's grace? All of these are short snippets, don't worry. Is there any example in the New Testament of the manifestation or the revelation of God's grace? Another question that we'll ask and quickly answer is, what was the role of the Holy Spirit in the unfolding and in the revelation and in the manifestation of this grace of God? And then man in our era becomes a prime manifestation of the grace of God to the world that we live in. And then we ask the question, how do you receive it? So, I want to start by saying, if one could call that, the whole miracle of the Protestant Reformation occurred because people rediscovered the wonder and the truth of the grace of God. The wonder and the truth of the grace of God. Now, you all know that little bit of history. I'll confine myself to this little liturgical space because probably it is streamed. Uh, You all know the story of the Protestant Reformation. Some good things flowed from that. Some not so good things flowed from that. In 1517, a Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther marched to the church door in Germany, in Wittenberg, and he nailed these 95 theses of salvation 
through grace and faith alone, in public on the door of that church. It was a public occasion, and that public occasion actually then marked the Protestant Reformation. And their key scripture on which they based this whole movement was Hebrews 10, 38, and Galatians 2, 16. And the Bible says, now the just shall live by faith. What was their mantra? How did they express that? How did they translate that for the populace? It it was only refined later, but it says, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All right. Wonderful. So that was the Protestant Reformation. How can we define grace then? Grace is the unmerited favor of God, despite the receiver, the recipient, despite his standing under the law, despite that he may, not may, he actually still finds himself in an undeserving position. That is what grace God's grace actually means. If you want to appreciate the concept, and as I said, we're just talking conceptually in this first part because I, I'll leave the uh, interpretation and the exposition of a serious doctrine like that of grace and faith for the pastors among us, the people who would actually be able to mine in it a little bit more deeply, but this is my understanding. Someone that will appreciate it is, think of a man walking to the gallows. Prepared to die. Guilty. And then he gets a last minute reprieve. I think he would really be able to comprehend the meaning of the term grace. Uh, Exodus 34, 6 says it's an attribute of God. What that means is you can't say the word grace without saying at the same time mercy. Without saying at the same time love, compassion, patience. The infinite and boundless grace of God. Someone once said, imagine God as a farmer. Now, the Bible sometimes speaks of God in an agricultural sort of setting and context as a farmer, husbandman, a vine dresser, John 15. But he said if God were a farmer, he would have farmed. His commodity would have been grace. He would prepare the soil for grace. He would plant, sow grace. He would reap grace. And he would do that abundantly because he would be a good farmer. And God distributes grace. The only thing is, although he distributes it for free, It is not cheap. It didn't come cheap. God is a farmer. Are there any Old Testament examples? Or where does grace come from as the prime example in the Old Testament? Obviously, it is the redemption of the Hebrew people out of bondage in the land of Egypt after something like 400 years. And thereafter, the law of Moses was actually the manifestation, the rudiments, the schoolmaster in terms of what God meant by grace, pointing forward to the redemptive work of of Christ on the cross. So, Israel. Israel's redemption is also a wonderful foreshadow of the process 
of individual salvation. Is there a New Testament supreme example? Well, the ultimate, John 1.14. The ultimate is Christ himself. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ is the revelation. Nay, Christ is the embodiment of the grace of God. The redemptive work on Calvary, his person and work, is the reflection, the revelation of the quantum, the quality of the grace of God. He had to earn our righteousness before God. He had to reconcile God and man. He was God's righteousness. He was at first brought to the earth to show us what it means to stand justified before the heavenly Father. And that brought our salvation in the end. The songwriter says, what condescension, bringing us redemption, that in the dread of night, not one faint Hope in sight. God, gracious, tender, laid aside his splendor, stooping. I'm so glad God is a God that can stoop. Because all the other gods in the firmament of the Greeks, these gods just need to be served. They never stooped at any stage in their history, in their non-existing history. He stooped to woo, to win, to save my soul. And the end of that verse says, The great creator became my savior. And Colossians 2, 9, And all God's fullness, Brigadier, dwelleth in him. All God's fullness dwelleth in him. He became the embodiment of of the grace of God for us. Now, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? You know, you sometimes read the Bible and then you miss things for years. I was one of those. Um, The Holy Spirit's role is to apply and to impute the righteousness and the justification of Christ in the sight of God to your and my life, to the sinner's life, in order to justify him. The Holy Spirit binds Christ and the believer to be together. And what is so wonderful to me, and this is what I was referring to, Hebrews 10 verse 29. I think let's read it, calls the Spirit in this respect. Remember, the Spirit of God also has, it's one person, but it has very many names. The Spirit of truth. But here in this context, it is so beautiful for me. It is called the Spirit of grace. The Spirit of grace. Uh, I said uh, 1029. Yes, it's 10.29. It says, Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden under the foot the Son of God, hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. The Spirit of grace. We all know about the incarnation of the second person in the Trinity, becoming flesh. But do you know what? 
The third person in the Trinity also assumed flesh. He made his abode, his indwelling within you and me. That's so wonderful, to produce in man justification, childhood of God, John 1, 12, whosoever, newness of life, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone be in Christ, he's a new creature. He's a new creature. The old things are passed away. They all are become new. I even quoted King James. This Afrikaans lad. Not so bad. I thought I wouldn't be able to do it. And then the same spirit of grace gracefully endows us with equipment for our work, with gifts to do our work better, and he gives it to all of us, but in different measures. All right. So this is the work of the Holy Spirit in the whole thing of grace, the whole dispensation of grace. So grace flowed from afar, like God's progressive revelation. It was afar for us, but it came all closer. And grace now, we are actually embodying in our era the very grace of God. Right. <clears throat> Man then becomes a revelation and also in a certain sense the embodiment of God's grace in this world here and now. This is what is important to me. So I sum up grace is incarnation. You'll understand now where I come from. Grace is indwelling. Grace is the habitation of God in me, John 17, 21. Let's quickly read that. The other portions, the other chapters will be shorter. All right. John 17. John 17, in John 17... Christ was praying. In the first part of the chapter, he prays for himself. The second part, he prays for his disciples, his immediate first-generation disciples. And then in, the, in this portion, he starts praying for those that will come to him due to their ministries. And he says, in the f let's read the 20th verse. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word. And this is the verse, that they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, I in thee, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. If God is in you, the world will take notice. They will, there will be no uh, no uh, doubt at all about the fact that God lives in us. Right, I'm through. If you want to know more about this, obviously the Apostle Paul, Romans 5, 17, Romans 6, Galatians 2. The Apostle Paul is the prime expositor of this whole doctrine of grace and faith. But we back all of this Grace coming from afar to actually ultimately reside within me for my generation brings us back to that mantra. I summarize as it says, justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. And the basic scripture, as I said, was now the just shall live by faith. Adrian, let's sing. Let's sing Amazing Grace, whichever verse they put up for us there. People, are you with me? Yes, I'm enjoying you. I hope you're enjoying me as well. Let's sing Amazing Grace. Let's stand and sing Amazing Grace. It gives you a let's stand. Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. 
I must commend you. Thank you. The second chapter, costly grace. Costly grace. As I said, in all fairness, all God's grace is costly. All right. Where do I get this term from, costly grace? Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was a Lutheran pastor. He was born in 1906. He lived until 1945, the 9th of April. So he only turned 39 when he faced the gallows of the Nazis. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was a Lutheran pastor in the time of the Holocaust. And people, this wasn't theology from a distance. This man was right within the context. In fact, he could escape it if he wanted to because at the time he was in the U.S. for a while and people there said to him, stay here, you are mad, don't go back. He says, I've got to go back, I'm part of the body of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, actively resisted the Nazi regime, and he was executed at Flossenburg death camp. He was for a year and a half on death row, and he is probably the most well-known modern-day martyr for Christ because of the profile that he held. He is famous for his last words. They said that when this young man of 39 walked to the gallows, the wardens hear him say, he turned to them and he said, this is the end. But for Dietrich, just the beginning. Isn't it wonderful? So he's known for that. So he then uh, was uh, executed on the 9th of April of 1945. But while in prison, that man never ceased to work for God. He held regular services in prison. He was a prolific writer of spiritual material from prison. And two of the most notable essays that he produced while on death row, I think, was titled Cheap Grace and the Cost of Discipleship. Right, so I borrow from him. I think we all do that from time to time. So I'm talking to you in this subsection on the sub subtitle of Costly grace. What am I going to cover? I've already covered Bonhoeffer's story. Costly grace, what is it? We carry the burden of the Great Commission. Where does the Great Commission come into? Our salvation? Our grace? What does Christ say? How does he summarize the cost of costly grace, of discipleship? And then the question, a very interesting question, if this is costly grace, it's costly, but where's the grace element? So I'd like to show you the grace element in that. Is there reward for, for discipleship? It's the next question I'm asking. And then this part I'll conclude with, we can all do something. We're not all Brother Jeffs. Where's Brother Jeff? I Raise my hat to you. We are not all like Brother Jeff, but that doesn't excuse us. There's a lot else that we can do. Costly grace. Bonhoeffer said it's the cost of discipleship. I showed you that the indwelling makes us the embodiment of the grace of God to our generation. In this church era, and we have the spirit of grace in us. So we are the ones that extend the hand and the grace of God to a dying world around us. Oh, to be his hand extended, reaching out to the oppressed. Let me touch him. Let me touch Jesus so that others may know and be blessed. Isn't that wonderful? We carry the burden, but in brackets, the privilege of the Great Commission. That's part of the cost. Brother Lloyd. Matthew 28, 19. Let's just quickly read that. We've read that a hundred times in your life, but it always 
when it's re- uh, read in the right context, it means something new to you. Verse 19, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost here, I just want to see again, Spirit of Grace. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. There is an expectation from God's side of an harvest, of a harvest. There's a clear expectation. Bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. You can see I, I grew up with George Beverly Shea. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. We've got a part to play. John 15, verse 8. Let me see if I can quote that one as well. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. That ye bear much fruit. Disciples are expected to bear the fruit. Right, let's get to this part. How does Christ summarize the cost of discipleship? We're now getting to costly grace, which is very important. Luke 14, 25 to 35. Luke 14, 25 to 35. No, it's not that far, just to 28, I think. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children, his family, and brethren and sisters, yea, listen to this, and even his own life. Fortunately, he said that because it qualifies what went before that. He cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross, requirement number two, and come after me cannot be my disciple. Take responsibility, your cross is your responsibility as a Christian to reach out to all and sundry around you, to be the shining light for Christ, to have a burden for others. Cross is a burden, a burden for others. For which, verse 28 of you, third requirement, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it. You see, many people come to Christ very easily. I think like the uh, rich young regent. I think Christ saw right through him. He didn't like the second part. He liked, he, he would have preferred the cheap grace. And he would have been a very good candidate for Christ because he was more learned than all the others. He had more money. He was better looking and all those sort of things. He could have been a useful disciple. But I think this is where he fell down in, in Christ's estimate. Right. Can I just tell you somebody here, something here which, which actually troubles me a bit. Primitive Christianity. And now you can see that I like to read church history. I'm so glad we don't live in those times anymore. Do you know what they were exposed to to become a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ? Let's take baptism. This man makes a decision for this man of Galilee, the carpenter of Galilee. And he goes to the Sea of Galilee to be baptized or the River Jordan. And he goes down into the water and there gathered around him are a few people witnessing what is happening. But amongst them stand one man a sentry of the Roman God in those days. He didn't come to witness it for good reasons. He didn't have notebooks and pencils, but he took down the particulars of that public confession, 
the man that makes this public confession. It is as if you signed your death warrant. Do you know what happens then? At that, When he gets out, he immediately forfeits any and all protection from Roman law. If you want to go and pillage his place, the Roman law would look the other way. You can do whatever you like. Uh, and then also, uh, if the Romans don't kill him, all they do is they pass his name on to the Sanhedrin. <laughs> Hobson's choice. I am just saying today, please, let us go very carefully with our sacraments. Let's just instill again in everybody, and it's a wonderful thing, we shouldn't be discouraged. I'm not discouraging anybody. I'm just saying that was, in those days, the cost of discipleship. And we must just realize that. Can I take uh, Jesus Christ in the upper room when he instituted the new covenant? Also, I'm not so sure that we always, and this, my historical sources show me that, that we always eat it entirely on the head. From times immemorial, if men raised the cup, there was a pledge involved. Not just remembrance. There was a pledge involved. And the pledge that Christ made that night, with he says, this is my body, I lay it on the line. This is my blood, I lay it on the line. Are you with me? And I think that is the whole intention that night. When they raised the cup, and you know history tells us, Christ died the martyr's death a few hours after that. And from all the people who raised the cup that night, the followers of Christ, I think only John survived until old age. They all went the same way. The price, the cost of discipleship, costly grace. Let's not forget that whenever we deal with our sacraments. I'm almost through with uh, chapter 2. Uh, right, so this is what Christ then put his requirements together. It's interesting, the price of discipleship is the same for everybody. It's all you have. If you have $10 in your pocket, that's the price. If you have 5 that's the price. We all can afford it. We all should become disciples of Christ. Everybody can afford it. The price is your best because he gave his best. Right, what is the grace element then in this costly grace? We read it. Verse 20 of Matthew 28, which says, And lo, I am with you always. I am with you. You're never forsaken. You are now a partner and a co-worker of Christ. That is the wonderful. That makes it gracious. I'll cut short here for a moment. Uh, I just want to read Ephesians 2 for 10 in a minute, but let me summarize this and then we'll do that. Um, is there reward? Is there reward? There is reward for discipleship. Jesus spells it out in Luke 18.29. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, there is no man, <laughs> this echoes what he said previously, that hath left house, or parents, or brethren, or wife, or children, for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more. When? In this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting. You can expect to be blessed by God. I'm not talking about material prosperity and all these light things that float around. Being blessed by God, having God's blessing, God's companionship, God's hand on you, that is what is this. So you'll never run out of resources with God on your side. Good. There is a wonderful crown. You lose your life, but you gain the blessings and you gain eternity. There's a wonderful crown that awaits the soul winner. Did you know that? 
You know, the Bible speaks of five crowns, and that's a, a teaching for another day. Righteousness, the good shepherd, the one awaiting the return of the Lord. But there's one in Daniel 2, uh, 12, verse 3. Page with me there, please. Daniel 12, verse 3. <laughs> I didn't expect to find this still in the Old Testament. But years ago, I preached on the second coming, and this one came up to me. Listen to the crown of the soul winner. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Verse 3, and they shall be wise, they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. Listen to this. And they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. These souls will really be the stars in your crown when the Lord comes again. All right. I think it's time for us again. Adrian, give us another, give us another verse of amazing grace, and then I do chapter 3. Are you still all with me? Are you relaxed? Please. Nobody to the bathroom, but let's all rise and sing this verse. Everybody, that my landing gear is out already. Chapter 3. Chapter 3. Cheap grace. Cheap grace. Can I just let us read Ephesians 2 from verse 4 to 10? Because this now gives a summary of what we have done so far. A very, very good summary of every point that we've already made. But I'm not going to now do a line-for-line -line interpretation. Uh, I think the word speaks for itself. 2 verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, or grace, for his great love, wherewith he loved us, in the spirit of grace, together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Amen. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that man is today represented in heaven among the gods <laughs> in his earthly body, albeit, uh, I would assume, albeit glorified? That in the ages to come, this is now the bit where you and I fit in, in the ages to come, he might shew the exceeding riches the abundant harvest of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. This is where you and I actually came along. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not by yourselves, it is the gift of God. But some 
theologians would say, but the, man, the will of man has got no role to play. It's nonsense. Isaiah 1.18, come now, let us reason together. But here it also says, you know, all that you need to say is, they call it the prevenient grace of God. Even that bit for you to stretch out to him, he still makes possible. But there's not nothing from your side. You are a recipient of God's grace. Right, and then the part that we've, uh, chapter 2, we should have read this. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So we're not earning our salvation through discipleship. It's a result. Love service. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, the new creature, unto good works. And the wonderful thing about it, God, which God hath already before ordained that we should walk in them. This is the summary of everything we've said so far. Now I get to the last part, cheap grace. And this is the application. This is my application. Uh, it's an admonition. It's an exhortation against cheap grace. All right. Why was Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer so disappointed? He asked a simple question. Where is the church in Germany? All these things happen right around. Where is the body of Christ? Where is the church? Where are the disciples who profess and confess the name of Jesus Christ? Amid the Holocaust, inhumanity, injustice, the church was absent, silent, and passive. And in his parlance, he actually said, may be complicit. Idly, standing idly by, complicit. Why? And then he said, maybe it's because of a phenomenon of cheap grace. A phenomenon of cheap grace. What is the essence of this cheap grace? Listen to this carefully. The essence is, it says, the sin account has been paid in advance. Because of that, Everything can be had for nothing. An open slate. You just book yourself against this open slate, which is not true. This is not biblical. It gives rise to licentiousness, if that is the case. It's a false salvation, and it does not breed true disciples. The justification, he says, the effect is this. It justifies the sin, not the sinner. We want sinners to be justified, not the sin to be justified. In our era, do we escape this phenomenon of cheap grace? Shall I say free grace just to make it easier on the ear? 2 Corinthians 2.17 speaks and sorry, just for this one verse, I adopted the New King James Version because this Afrikaans singi, son, he understands that one term better. They peddling with the gospel. Peddling. There it's making the gospel corrupt, which is true. But I'm saying let's not peddle grace. They peddle grace. I'm talking about mega churches. I'm talking about virtual churches. Not, not all of them. But there are some of them. Peddling grace for two reasons. Number one, can we all guess? Money. And secondly, for youth. The juvenilization, have you ever heard about that? The juvenilization of Christianity. They want to modernize the age profile of the church. So that is why a light version is presented to the audiences. No zeal for souls. No zeal for souls. How do they do it? And I'm very quick now. I found three or four things that they do that we must always guard against. Not, it only happens in New South Wales, not here. Sorry, I, Western Australia. No zeal for souls. The first one, the dilution of the sinner's prayer in mass. They'll ask 600 people to arise. 
and say a sinner's prayer after it. Recite. A mechanical recital. There's nothing wrong with the content of of the sinner's prayer. Let me continue, complete my sentences. Of the sinner's prayer. But, but, it should only follow or accompany a heart transformation. It's a deep experience. It's not a mechanical recital of any passage or prayer or whatever the case may be. If you do that, you give a false assurance of salvation. You certify the salvation falsely. And we, are, we should never be a party to that. As I say, it doesn't happen here. I'm just mentioning it. <laughs> the facetious question that came up to me was, did Jesus ever use that prayer? <laughs> he had three occasions. The rich young ruler, he didn't say, close your eyes, say you know, repeat after me. Oh. He confronted him in another way. Paul, crying on the road to Damascus, who are you, Lord? He didn't say, save me. He didn't say, Paul, close your eyes. Or at that time, Saul. Uh, no, 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 no. He told him how much he would actually endure for him. Have to endure. And the third one is Nicodemus. This elder from Israel who couldn't understand He says, Master, what must I do to be saved? He says, no, you've got to be reborn. New creature. Do you know what? There are many things about God that's not logical. That we can't reason out. Our intellectual capacity and faculties are just deficient when it comes to that. And that's when we have to accept that he's God. He's God. Not even a very clever Nicodemus uh, could exactly fathom what happens at rebirth, my, I had an, a grandma. She was only learned. She was only learned to the extent of about four or five years schooling in those days. I, I'm talking about. She would have been oh, far over hundred now if she lived. But when you get into a difficult debate like this, what is rebirth and how does it work and that and where did Adam get? A, did he have a niece or a nephew or whatever? She would say, "Okay, just explain this to me, then we can go further." The black cow grazes on the green grass and gives white milk. <laughs> and obviously, it's silence. It's silence, just silence the whole discussion. So, yeah, when, when you figure that one out, let's talk about exactly how rebirth works. You and I don't know. It's like the wind, Jesus told him. Right, I'm almost through. Uh, so, the first one is the dilution of that sinner's prayer. The second one is just a head or a rational. Uh, or a cognitive acceptance, a confession that comes from the head. As I said, we need a heart transformation because the Bible says, my son, give me your heart. In the first place, give me your heart. And the Bible also says, even the devils confess, and yet they tremble. So confession, confession alone. I think in these churches, their pews are filled with confessors, not believers. Confesses. Okay, so let us avoid that at all costs. And the third one is subscription involvement. <laughs> involvement from a distance. You pay your dues and you stay out of vision and uh, you, know, you stay in your place and we stay in our place. Subscription involvement. No discipling. No zeal for souls. They want a semblance of godliness but not the power thereof. Right, isn't it important for us to understand when the songwriter also says, and when my work on earth is done, and my new work in heaven's begun. Seems to me work never ends. May I forget the crown I've won while thinking still of others. Let this my motto be, thinking of others. I am through the last one, and this is the the one that I'm the most hesitant about. But have you been watching the American television of late? A world leader is tottering on wobbly legs. My wife said, you don't go there. (laughs) So please just bear with me, Esther. You know, they are all... They are all like us. They believe in the pre-trip rapture position in eschatology. 
And that is not the problem. Not at all. That's not the problem. But they created, they are in such a space that the outside world sees the man following Christ with a sword in the one end and the suitcase in the other. It's time for us, you must always be watchful. The imminent return of Christ, we all agree on that. But put the suitcase down and have swords in two hands because you're going to need them now. You're going to need them now. I say stop peddling escapism. When I listen to them, they just tell people, don't worry, it'll be over tomorrow or the day after. And when Jesus doesn't come then, what are we going to then say? Then we change our prophecy, which people often do. So what I'm saying is don't, let us not peddle the spirit, listen carefully to me, the spirit of escapism. Because I think the spirit of escapism kicks you in neutral. You do nothing for fear. And that is not what God wants us to do. We need to be active in it. Now, what I wanted to say about that was, where did they get it from? You know, escapism is a Greek thing. Judaism as a religion is a very busy, active, now and here, hands-on religion. They make proselytes and they do all sorts of things. But the Greeks are different. You know what the Greeks do? They've got three prisons that they just want to escape. Or <laughs> I'm talking about the ancient Greeks. I'm not saying today. The time that the Bible was written. They've got three prisons. They say the first prison is your body. It imprisons your soul. So the body is a bad thing. We must get rid of the body. We must yearn to escape from the body. The second prison is earth, the valley of tears. So if you die at least, oh, you leave this valley of tears behind and you go to a better place. We must yearn for that and do nothing here. And the third one is escape the present because that's what you're doing. You escape the present, the responsibility of the present, and working for the Lord in this world while you can still do it. Right. My dad, he didn't know much about the Beatles. Does anybody know about the Beatles? He gave them a nickname. He said the Dung Beetles. <laughs> and the Dung Beetles, they sang a song that is so Greek in character. Dream, dream, dream. All I have to do is dream. Okay, the last scripture. And with this I close. I close. 1 Corinthians 6.20. 1 Corinthians 6.20. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, in your spirit, which are God's. You know what? We hold the spirit of God. We embody the spirit of God, the mind of Christ, the nature of Christ, the new nature. We are his body in this world. So what else do we need? We must just do the work that he gave us. Thank you. Can we uh, sing, uh, what is that other song? Uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's close with another verse of Amazing Grace. I hand over to Andrew. Andrew, my 40 minutes actually became something more than that, and I'm very sorry for that and for all of you. But thanks for co-preaching with me. I really enjoyed it. May God bless you. Let's sing that quickly. Just one verse. Hey. Eh?